It is certainly a privilege and honor to be here, and yes, it is something that has been in the making and I've been looking forward to for a number of years. If I recall, and I didn't keep good notes on this, unfortunately, but if I recall, I was first contacted by Brother Meeker back in roughly 2012-ish. In 2012-ish, I was still preaching all over the southeastern United States, traveling very heavily, but I was wearing an IV bag on my side 24-7. And so it wasn't as convenient. I was on the heart transplant list at that point. It wasn't as convenient to come, and thankfully, it gave me an out on that. I guess, I guess that'll get you out of a meeting. Uh, but I did continue to do meetings down south of you all, just a little closer to home, traveled all over the place and was blessed. I actually preached the night before I went in the hospital for heart transplant. So just a little fact there. And then uh, got out of the hospital uh, after that period of time and preached two weeks later in a gospel meeting down in Valdosta, Georgia. My good friend David, who I can't even look at hardly, has been a supporter. Many of you have heard the name through the years, Marshall Keeble. Uh, Marshall Keeble did all the work that he did as just a poor old man because someone made it possible, and they financed and made it possible for him to travel, and it is supposed that he affected uh, and potentially even had a hand in baptizing over 50,000 souls. I've not done any of that, but David is my encourager. He, um, he's had his own battles himself. He is still in the midst of really a fight with leukemia, and so he struggles at times, uh, very terrible issues with his blood sugars and all, but uh, he was where I was about, I don't know, five or six weeks ago. We had had a conversation that morning. I told him about the fact that I would be coming here, and he said, I wished, and that's what we say in the South, I wished I could go, but I just can't. And then I preached, and he ran up to me and said, I'm going. And so it had been a while since we had been together because of COVID, but he has really went out on a limb to come. And uh, I appreciate that. But as much as that, I appreciate you. I, I came here. I don't know what your intentions were. But I came here because in my mind, there are souls that need to be saved. And in every effort that I put forth, whether it's in a gospel meeting such as this one that we're blessed to be a part of, or uh, in just speaking and filling in and traveling as I do, there have been years I've traveled 35, 40 weeks a year, held 10 to 12 meetings. That's been a little slower, but in every one of those efforts, my purpose in mind is always either and to evangelize and to encourage. Because I want these communities such as yours to be evangelizing people, and I want to assist in doing that. But I also want to give you the encouragement when I walk away to keep on keeping on. And that's a mutual understanding of David and I and a good friend that we lost several years ago, and I want you to just know that. But as a way of housekeeping, that was about it. So go ahead and open your Bibles, if you don't mind, with me to the book of Mark. Uh, when you get there, Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. I do not flip or flop very often. I'm what is referred to as an expository preacher. And if you don't understand that, that means if you find a page you got it, and we'll talk about that. And, and, and in essence, even farther than that, I will say this. Uh, I will be using the same exact text today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. And this may come as a surprise to you, and I don't know much about these clickers, but this may come as a surprise to you. 
but I will also be using uh, the same outline. So if you're a note taker, you'll need several sheets of paper, I believe, but go ahead and write down the main outline that's uh, here on the screen behind me, and that will be the outline for the week. We will come back to it in every facet and form, but that will be the outline for the week. So just getting that out of the way, what we're going to do in each and every one of these meetings, and I would encourage you to strive to be back and especially to bring people with you, uh, folks with you, souls with you. But what we're going to do in every one of these instances is we're going to basically do two things. We're going to try to accomplish two things during that. Number one, and this is most important to an extent, there has to be an examination of the text. If you were looking for someone, I know that you weren't, but just in passing, if you were looking for someone to come here who was not planning to use the Bible, you done called the wrong man, and I can be home by sundown. Uh, but if you come to hear the Bible or to be a part of a study of God's Word, that's what we're going to do, and we're going to be doing an examination of the text. In doing that, as you can see here, we're going to be looking at two things, very simply. Number one, we'll look at context. Because if I've heard it said many times, a text without a context is a mere pretext. And what that simply means in Alabama talk is, it ain't no good. It won't work. You can take scriptures for an example, such as Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, which says, King James translation I'll be quoting, but whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now question for you, is that true? Do this, it is true. But is it the whole truth? No ma'am, no sir, it's not. That verse being used in that way with nothing else said is taken out of context. Therefore, for the salvation of man becomes essentially worthless. So we're going to look at the context and not the, just the context of this chapter, chapter 12. We will look at a few more contexts outside of it, particularly the related text to this. There are parallels that are listed here. We're mainly focusing on Mark's account, Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, but there are also parallels that are related to this found in Matthew chapter 22 as well as in Luke chapter 10 and verse 37. And we're going to think about some of those things as we gather our thoughts here. But then we're going to boil that down because we have to get to the text. In the quote, and I maybe can hit this for you to see it, but in the quote here on the screen, King James translation again, that says what it does, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Each one of those things, heart, soul, mind and strength, and we won't have the opportunity to get to it, but thy neighbor as thyself in the next verse, each of those five phrases, four listed here totally, all apply themselves to a group of people or a context of people that boils down in the text of this to allow them to know the way they ought. And I said ought, not that they would, but the way they ought to have changed their lives. So we're going to do that. And then forward from that, I won't repeat this every night, I promise, but if you're jotting it down, you'll have it. Forward from that, not only would we do an examination of the text, the context and the text, but then even more importantly, we're going to make an education of the text. 
And that is we're going to allow this book right here, these pages, mine happen to be, this is one of my uh, newer copies, so instead of being yellow and black and red, it is white and black and red still. But we're going to use these pages right here to educate us as to how we have to live. Some will refer to that as making the application. Because I'm a student of the Bible. I'm sure that most, if not all of you, are students of the Bible as well, and, and to the same extent, maybe even some. But I'm a student of the Bible, but I know for a fact that even though I sit down every day with my Bible, my copy of Scripture in my hand, and I read it, and I examine it, and I delve into it, and I like to go deep down into it, sometimes in the phrases and the words, it makes no difference. Else I bring it into my life and use it in my soul to educate me as a Christian. And then in that, we'll do two things. Well, number one, we'll notice the expression of it. What in the world is Jesus saying when he says this to the people to whom he says it? And then we'll notice the exercise of it. What in the world was Jesus saying when he said it to those people, and how can I use that in my life? That's pretty simple. Matter of fact, one of my great uncles in life, and I mean by that great as far as older generation, Brother Franklin Camp put it this way, simple sermons save souls. So this is simple, and that's where we'll go. So let's notice a few things about this. We'll just start out right here with the outline there. Let us notice examination. You got your Bible open? I'm, I'm just, I guess, uh, blessed enough that my copy happens to have chapter 11 and chapter 12 where I can see both of them. But I want you to notice here, when Jesus comes before these people, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 12, it says to us, this was a scripture reading from a moment ago, by the way, and one of the scribes came... And having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, ask him, which is the first commandment of all? And we'll explain every one of these accusations, these attacks as we go through the week, specifically per group. But in that case right there, when they came up and said, Jesus, which is the first and they meant by that priority, top-notch, most important commandment of them all, his reply to them was very simple. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That's his reply. That is in a nutshell his reply. But in the context here, if you break that out, he's not only talking at that point to the scribes listed here in verse 28, chapter 12. If you go back across the page to chapter 11 and verse 18, you find out there would be a number of people who would come to make accusation and attack an inquiry on our Lord. And they would do it with a very deviant heart. Watch what it says, verse 18, chapter 11. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now, I would encourage you to go home today and spend, a, it'll take you a moment or two, but spend some time in the book of Mark, if you want to choose that account, 
spend some time in the book of Mark and start reading in chapter 1 and maybe you'll thumb through some, maybe you'll settle down in others, but read through the book of Mark chapter 1 up into chapter 11 and verse 18 and notice how many times Jesus is accused and or attacked by groups of people whose intention, and I'm quoting here right here in the middle, smack middle of verse 18, was to seek to destroy him. Now we know in hindsight, in seeing the rest and the remainder of that story, that their destruction that they intended on Jesus was not only inclusive of his uh, leadership qualities, which he possessed, albeit I don't think he put as much effort into it as they thought, it was more than the uh, acclamations or the praise that he was receiving by this point. This is late in his life. As a matter of fact, this whole account, my mind, it may not be yours. That's my disclaimer. You may have a different opinion of such. This whole account takes place basically on Wednesday of what we call the Passion Week. This takes place on Wednesday before Jesus would go into trial and go to the cross on Friday. So 48-ish hours prior to Jesus going to the cross, dying as he did, being resurrected on what we would refer to as the Sunday, the Lord's Day, finally ascending into heaven some 50-odd days later, during that period of time, Jesus had been under accusation and attack over and over and over again. And we know again the rest of the story. Their intention was to destroy him. Literally there, to completely disintegrate him as a human standing on earth. And obviously the cross would accomplish such. But it did not accomplish what they desired. Now if you look a little bit farther than that, chapter 11, the book of Mark, verse 27, I want you to underline, there'll be four phrases. I want you to underline, and they'll be useful Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as well as today. But underline four phrases and four names, if you want to call it that, that are attributed to those who accuse him. Number one, verse 27 of chapter 11. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and there came to him the chief priest, underline that, and the scribes, underline that, and the elders, verse 28, and say unto him, By what authority dost thou doest? these things and who gave thee the authority to do these things now why would they ask such a question we'll discuss context another day why did they ask such a question of him because they had authority they believed in their hearts that they had authority and that they were in this case they had the power and the authority over all men particularly the jews and these people named specifically the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They made up a part of or a portion of a group known as the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, if you're not familiar with that group, there were basically 71 men that made up the Jewish Sanhedrin. 70 men plus one that they would call the prince or the president, and then they had a vice president, and these men carried all the authority, so they had described themselves as, concerning the law. Concerning the law of Moses, under which, have to disclaim, under which Jesus himself even was living at that time. So they came. That's the first group. There's three listed, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. 
called that the Sanhedrin, think to yourself their attack on him would concern authority. Move on across the page. You get into chapter 12 and verse 13, and here's what it says. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees. Underline the word Pharisees right there. And of the Herodians. Underline the word Herodians right there. So we have the Sanhedrin, verse uh, 27, chapter 11. We have the Pharisees and the Herodians listed by name, chapter 12 and verse 13. Drop down the page. I hope you underlined those two. Verse 18, chapter 12. And then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying... What were they intending to do? You know, I can remember years ago, and, and many of you are, are plenty old enough, a handful of you are not nearly old enough, but I can remember the statement always being made, inquiring minds want to know. What did they intend on doing? What thus far did the Sanhedrin grouped up, verse 27, 11? What did the, those called the Pharisees and the Herodians grouped up, verse 13? What did the Sadducees grouped up, verse 18? What were they asking? Scroll across the page and I'll answer such. Verse 28 of chapter 12, Mark. And one of the scribes came and having heard the reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered well, asked him which is the first commandment of all. You say, okay, well, here's the last one then. We've got the Sanhedrin, verse 27, 11. We've got the Pharisees and the Herodian listed by name, verse number 13 of 12. We've got the Sadducees, verse number 18 of chapter 12. And now we have one listed here as a scribe, which you could tie back across the page. And I, I didn't completely get my arrow to grow, uh, go across there, but verse 27 of 11. So we have a scribe. What are they trying to do? Two of these groups are listed in quote, having asked him. You say, well, I mean, if you have a question... It's only the right and the appropriate thing to do to ask someone. You don't know, make accusation against me or against our Lord or against you. Uh, you wouldn't want anybody making an accusation against you. You would want them, if they have an issue or they have an inquiry, to come and ask. Here's some truth. <laughs> the Greek word that backs up the English that we are reading, thanks be to God we're able to do that, but the Greek word that backs up the English word that we're reading right here is a word that literally means that they sat down, this quote-unquote asking of him to over-quote, it's a compound word, to over-interrogate him. That's where I say interrogation. And they didn't just interrogate him, they wanted to over-interrogate him. How many of you have seen uh, these four trillion crime shows on television? 
And or maybe you've maybe you've been a part of this. Maybe you've been in the judicial system. And often, if not all time, when a person is brought in to be interrogated or questioned, they will put that person in a chair. And during the midst of that interrogation, that questioning, oftentimes the inquirer there will stand up and lean over just to be sure they know who has the true authority in the room what they did as a matter of fact if you dig a little deeper into the definition behind this word the etymology that's a big word we don't use that in Mumford or Glencoe Uh, maybe you don't use it here often it means the uh, origination of something or the development of something in its original state it actually means they accosted him with questions I have to say that you say, well, you just killed a good 10 minutes. I sure did. I'd have to say that. Jesus is not meeting here with a bunch of friendly, buddy-buddy guys who've put their arm around him and say, come here for a minute. I just need to talk to you. I hate to even, I hate to even ask. I mean, I really don't want to get into it with you, but could you just tell me where you get your authority? Could you just describe to me, you know, this situation with uh, uh, in, in the case of verse 13 through 17? Could you describe to me the, the loyalty that we should have? You know, should we give our tribute to Caesar or to God or how do we handle that? They weren't being friendly in mind when they were questioning themselves, their, their privileges or the eternity, verse 18 beginning of the Sadducees the eternity there they weren't being nice and saying tell us about the resurrection you know we're the folks that don't understand the resurrection we don't believe it's going to happen but if you'll explain it carefully we'll go with that no neither was the scribe now that is some of the context Each of these statements that are made, particularly in verse 30, that do concern those four parts of the focus of that first and great commandment, the heart, the soul, the mind, and in this account in Mark uses strength, by the way, as well does Luke. Matthew leaves it out. You look in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. If you have any more questions, Brother Meeker and Ryan are available after services. They'll clear all of that up. It's a confusing context. But when they did so, the men who asked the question, who were listed here as the, quote, scribes, are actually those who, if you back it up through that context, came out of the group known as the Sanhedrin. That's why we type chapter 11 and verse 27 close so closely. And out of those people, the Sanhedrin made up of the chief priests and the scribes, and the elders who attached themselves, verse 13, chapter 12, with the Pharisees and the Herodians, who attached themselves, verse 18, chapter 12, with the Sadducees. They came and made all of their inquiries only to have one man referred to as a scribe to come back in with an attitude of, you couldn't get him, but watch this. He will deny all of us 
because he doesn't agree with the law of Moses. He's coming here to destroy Moses. And he doesn't agree. Now, if you want to examine who these groups really were, and probably most specifically the application we're going to use for this purpose, and we're short on time to do so. But understand the scribes came out of that Sanhedrin. And that just like you might talk with me after services, and one may come up and say, it is good to meet you, Jim. And another might say, it is good to meet you, Brother Merle. You're talking about the same fella. The same person. As a matter of fact, my name proper is James Edward Merle, called Jim. I am a father of five, a husband of one, a gospel preacher, a YouTube creator, a podcaster, a heart transplant recipient, and by any of those ways you refer to me, I'm the same fella. And so let's examine the text, the context, all of these accusations. The text really begins, and I appreciate the scripture reading from a moment ago, in verse 28. When one of the scribes, they are actually representing the Pharisees. When one of the scribes, having heard the reasoning and perceiving that he had uh, answered them well, asked him, again, that is to uh, accost him with question, to over-interrogate him, ask him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him. I hope you've got, if you write in your Bible, you, you get your writing instrument out. You can have mine if you need it bad enough. And Jesus answered him, watch it. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one God. He's saying, now you told us uh, 23 times already that that commandment was verse 30. Oh, uh, uh, it is. You've mentioned several times that, that you know, that, that heart, soul, mind, strength, that's going to apply to different, oh, oh, it does. But it all applies to them in this way. Cohesively. Connectively. In a communal way that they all must know first. The Lord, oh God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, and I've got this highlighted, boxed in, and underlined. You say, what does that mean? It means that's the way I mark in my Bible. The Lord our God is one God. When Jesus says, hear, O Israel, he turns in a sense and he points and he says, you scribes, you elders, you chief priests, uh, you, you uh, Pharisees, you Herodians, you Sadducees, and you scribe who've come amongst to represent them all, hear this if you hear nothing else. The Lord our God is but one God. Why do they need to hear that? Because they, albeit they were together for this one task 
of accusing and questioning and interrogating our Lord. They were so far separated in their daily lives. In this case, the Sanhedrin as an individual group, even though they were made up of, admittedly, they were made up of many of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin as a group, they did nothing individually for those Pharisees. Nothing individually for those Herodians. Nothing individually for those Sadducees. I've heard it said many times, and I get the truth of it. Please don't quote me from your notes in this sense. But I've heard it said many times, well, denominationalism came out of, you know, and they'll start giving dates of quote-unquote faiths and churches that this one started in this year and this one that year. Denominationalism existed among the Jews. Now, the church itself that had been established through the great mystery of God, study that on your own that had been established to bring Jew and Gentile alike all together in the church that was established, as we refer to it, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter and the eleven preached, as the Holy Spirit had come down upon them, as men and women were baptizing, the number of them containing about 3,000 souls, probably upwards of 700,000 a million in present. Although that was united it only later divided as it had been divided before. But as Jesus would say concerning marriage and such as that and divorce, from the beginning it was not so. Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, open your ears, open your eyes, and hear the Lord God is one God. As a matter of fact, what he said is this. He said, the Lord, Kyrios, is our Theos, and therefore certainly our one Theos. Now certain of them would have said, well, I, I respect God in heaven. <laughs> the Father of the Jews, God certainly but among that, they would say, but no to Jesus. And he ties himself here in with God. He ties the Old Testament God, Yahweh, however you would say that, we can't actually pronounce such. He ties that in with himself. And he basically says in these people's faces, to an extent that would have felt as if he had spat in their face. There is but one God. And based upon that monumental foundational truth, then he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. You say, why are you pointing at me? I apologize, you are the illustration. Those who were there called the Pharisees, a group of people who in their minds believed they knew it all. 
so much so that they had taken the law of Moses that had been, uh, what's the word that we can understand? Jammed up in Ten Commandments. There were more to it than that. Again, Brother Meeker is available at the back door. Brother Ryan, when you need help. But those Ten Commandments that had actually been so simple, so understandable, they had taken those Ten Commandments and through a series of documents, one of which known as the Mizvah, and I can't say there's a V and a Z and there's a lot of there's a small word, too many letters. They had came up with the Mizvah, the Pharisees, which contained within it 613 laws to try to commentate and to tell them how to deal with ten. And of the 613 laws, 248 of those laws were positive. Thou shouts. But 365 were negative. You say, where did they get the numbers? They actually believed, it seems, that since we had 365 days in a year, you've got to have at least one negative in your life. And they followed it. Other groups listed, such as the Herodians, such as the Sadducees, they thought so much differently. But the Pharisees had taken the law of God, which was true, and had taken it and not boiled it down, but yet boiled it over to create for themselves 613 laws and up to follow, to tell them how to live. And by doing so, they had made themselves. You see, this is this would be popping the suspenders if I was David. This is pulling the pulling the lapel. They had made themselves above God. And with all their robes as they had adapted from something that was once true and once commanded of God by the priest and the high priest, they stood before this group, quote. Pious, you can write pious somewhere on your notes. Pious, proud of what they had accomplished. And by their pride, they had stood and lorded over men such as they're doing with Jesus now. They asked him, that is, they accosted him, that is, they looked over him, that is, they shook their fingers in the face of God. And they said, where do you get your authority? What is the greatest commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment of all is that you ought to hear, O Israel. The Lord thy God is one God, and he is Lord. And when they said that, or he said that to them, they probably did this. Hmm. And he did this. Thou. That's not y'all. We got y'all written in scriptures. Ye, King James, we got y'all. This ain't y'all. Some translations say you. You may be looking at one that says your. King James says thou. Thou shalt love thy God with all thy Pharisees. Heart. Jesus said, get a heart. You are heartless. 
You have made so many commandments that no man can keep them. You have taken what God made so simplistic and you have played that out to these people so it is impossible to do and absolutely impossible to live. Why do you do that, he says. He's telling them to their face, you do it because of pride. You do it because you have no heart. Now, if we want to put reference with this, and I said we wouldn't flip or flop, and I know we've run out of time, but that's uh, this is God's time, not mine. Flip back to Matthew 15 and verse number 1. You want to know who the Pharisees were, you read two chapters. Matthew 15, there are others, but read two chapters this afternoon. Matthew 15, read about the first nine verses, be enough. And then read Matthew 23, and you'll get tired before you read Matthew 23. Because he sheds it all. He shucks the corn, as we say, on those Pharisees. But look what we have, Matthew 15, verse number 1. And then came to Jesus the scribes and the Pharisees. This is how we know they're in coercion. They're the cohorts. The scribes and the Pharisees were at Jerusalem saying, why do the disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? They didn't say why they go against the law of God. They didn't ask him why is he not, you know, they're not following the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. Why are they uh, transgressing, going against, across the grain with the traditions of the elders? But he, that is Jesus, verse 3, answered and said unto them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God with your traditions? That's their problem. Flip over for time's sake the next page, verse 8. For this people, the Pharisees, the scribes, for this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouths and honoreth me with their lips. But watch it. Watch it. But their heart is far from me. What's the problem with the scribes? What is the problem with these Pharisees? Their heart, heart is far from God. The literal term here means it is cast away from God. Now whether they, God did the casting or they did, cast away from God. Matthew 15 and verse 9. In vain they do worship me. How is that God? Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Here's what we have. We've examined the text. Not only the text, but the context. We are now turning to the educational portion, which I promise you will go quickly. So you promised that a few minutes. Yeah, okay. I confess my lies. Look at the education of this. I said already it applies itself most contextually to the Pharisees. I said already the issue with the Pharisees was that they were pride-filled and pious and that when they questioned the authority and the priority right here, verses uh, 28 through 31, when they questioned the authority of Jesus, that they did it because of their pride and their pious hearts. We read there a moment ago that their problem specifically stated in Scripture was a problem of the heart. And how does that apply to us today? Look at it. 
this is expressed in this one phrase. Christianity is a religion of emotion. Now somebody says, oh, contrary, moon prayer. Didn't you say something like that? I don't know how to say that. Somebody says that and they say, well, that ain't right, man. Uh, I've, I've, I've learned all my life that if you get people too emotional and too upset, they'll do some crazy things. And, and I certainly wouldn't want, wouldn't want to draw anybody to God based on, you know, a, an upsetting moment or tears in their eyes. And if you've ever been to a Christian camp for youth, you, you've had to use that kind of caution because sometimes one, one young person will come and, and just in that, they'll, before long, there'll be 12 people standing there needing to be baptized and some of them will be knee-high to a grasshopper and they won't know you got to be cautious. True, true, and true. But the essence is this. If God has gotten in your mind and not gotten in your heart, He ain't got nowhere. That, my friends, ain't worth a hill of beans. If you don't understand that, David's got a dictionary he can loan. It doesn't matter. Christianity is a religion of emotion. If Jesus can't get your heart, he actually can't get your soul. He doesn't have your mind. He can't even allow you to use or process his strength because it is a religion of emotion. That is the expression of it. And you say, okay, well, still, I, I need to question that because we don't want to be overly emotional, overly dramatic, and, 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 and that sort of thing. Let's look at this. Just look at a few verses really quickly. First, I don't know why it says in at the top. It has nothing to do with nothing. But uh, uh, first of all, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, look at what it says here. But God, thank be to God, who were once servants of sin, but ye have obeyed, watch this, from the heart. Heart is a part of obedience. That's what should be there. You can't even obey God without your heart. In the next place, you can go to Acts 2.47. Remember, those individuals on that day were pricked in their heart. It's a part of obedience. Second to that, our hearts are involved in our compassion. Notice that, Colossians 3 and verse 2. Set your affection, compassion, your heart on things above, not on things of this earth. Our heart is not only a part of that, it is also a part of our celebration. That is, we gather to worship. We worship Him, John 4, 24, in spirit, that is heart, and in truth. We gather here in this place and we do certain acts of worship. He's referred to them, one of which is including of a singing praises unto God, celebrating Him. And the verse specifically says we sing and make melody in our hearts. And then this one right here that for whatever reason is in again is our connection. We not only can't have conversion, compassion, and celebration without a heart, we cannot be connected. We love one another with a pure heart, fervently. So what do we do? You can close your Bibles, but not your mind. What do we do? Based on trying not to be a part of any of this group, particularly not trying to be a Pharisee, not trying to question the authority of God based on the piety of self. What shall I do? Number one, take the
the hand of Jesus. How many times in your life, emotionally, obviously not spiritually, but how many times in your life emotionally, maybe in worship, have you brought yourself to the foot of the cross on Golgotha? And have you brought yourself to the foot of the cross on Golgotha? And you've noticed there beneath your feet those sandy soils. And in the midst of those sandy soils, again in mind, in heart, you've also seen the droplets of blood that have fallen. How many times have you reached down in those sandy soils beneath Golgotha and picked up just a handful of sand and held it within your hand and looked to the face of our Lord? How many times have you been at the hill of Golgotha with a hand of sand and the droplets of blood which you let go of that sand and reviewed your hand again only to see the droplets of blood having been called in the creases of each groove and each pattern in that hand. And how many times have you thought to yourself, oh, look at what he did. Look at how great God is. I appreciated what the brother said a moment ago and the picture in our minds that he drew and how true it is to know we've got to take the hand of Jesus. Somebody says, well, I'm one of those people. I've studied my Bible so long and read it through so many times. I can tell you all the instances, preacher, where a while ago when you were going through, you missed this word, and I'm dyslexic, by the way. You missed this word, and you misread that, and I can tell you there was one place here you mentioned something you didn't put in in its context. Maybe so. But I believe I put Jesus in my heart. And I did that through obedience, through faith, repentance, confession and baptism. You can allow the blood of Christ to wash away your sins even today. And you can allow that blood to continue to cleanse your heart and to change your heart. Because Christianity is a religion of emotion. Number two. Not only take the hand of Jesus, but take the hand of another. I don't know this community. That's, that's one of the blessings and the curses, if you can say that, of me traveling all that I do. I go into so many communities. I've been there a dozen times. I know the faces. I know the names. And I may not remember any of yours, so don't try me on that. But I'll know this, and I'll know who, where they work and where they live and how many kids and the, the color of the dog. But I go in so many other places. I know no one, but I know Jesus. And I know the Lord, and I know you know the Lord. And I can go in those places with complete transparency and absolute, hopefully, sincerity and say, I came here to save a soul. And that will be assisted only by you and you. When you take the hand of Jesus and you draw it into your heart, and you use that hand that God blessed you with to reach out to another in this community, in this expanse of space in which we live. You find a person that's broken. 
You find a person that's downtrodden. You find a person that's hurting and in pain. You find that person who's addicted to drugs. You find that person who 12 years ago had an abortion because that's all she knew to do. You find that person who's a drunkard. You find that person who's divorced and living with someone now, claims they're married, and you reach out to them, and you don't take their sin on you, and you don't pull their sin to you. You give that sin to God and let them do so. And you affect their space, and you allow God himself to change their heart. Because without it, they are lost. I don't know how much you love your community, but I love them myself. And I work for our lifetime, not for a week. I work for our lifetime is to take the hand of our Lord and to extend our hand to someone who is hurting. There's somebody who used to sit right there. You say, how do you know? I don't know, but I do know. They used to sit right there, and they're not here. Why? Because they're there. You say, well, that's COVID. Maybe so. But it could be the worst virus that has ever attacked anyone in this life, and that's their heart. And they may not be sick. They may be dead spiritually. And unless you're willing to take their hand, they will die eternally as well. I don't know what your intentions are, but I know what his intentions are. The God of heaven said, The Lord thy God is but one God. Hear he him. Thankful to be a servant this morning. You're in need of anything particularly the salvation of your own heart. The invitation is open while together we stand and as we sing.